Hey everybody, it's Noah, Editor-in-Chief here at the Arc of E Network, and it is a very special day for us here. It is May the 1st, 2020, which means it is our three-year anniversary. That's right, we have been podcasting for three years, if you can believe it. Uh, so I want to send a very big thank you to any and all of our listeners, people who were there from the very beginning, people who found us along the way, shared us with their friends, rated and reviewed us on iTunes, liked anything on social media, anything that helped to grow the show, and we just appreciate your listenership in general. we got a lot of exciting stuff coming for you in year four. Uh, on that note, I'm here to introduce Flashback Fridays, which is a new regular thing, so get excited, people. Uh, we've had a lot of podcasts over the last three years across several different feeds, so this is kind of an effort to consolidate some of that, and it's kind of a all-in-one package, if you will. So uh, we're going to kick things off today with a very early episode. This was one of the first 10 podcasts that my brother Gavin and I ever recorded together. This was part of Carpenter Revisited, the first miniseries we ever did, uh, where we explored the filmography of Mr. John Carpenter. I assume if you've listened to any episodes on this feed, you've, you've heard us mention it before. But that feed is uh, exclusively on our Patreon. So if you do want to go listen to it in its entirety... By all means, we would appreciate that. For as little as a dollar a month, you can go to patreon.com slash the arc of E and you can become a subscriber. That'll give you access to our ad-free archives and you can listen to the whole run. But, you know, if you wait, you'll definitely see more Carpenter Revisited here on Fridays occasionally, but they're going to be spaced out. We're going to try and get the Brothers Blanchard back in here as well. They've done a bunch of miniseries for us. You'll probably hear from uh, Sunshine Mayfield from time to time. Uh, but yeah, it'll be a fun little retrospect, and I, I plan on doing intros for these. We'll see how that goes. Uh, this is a little awkward, always recording solo by myself, but this one, this is an early one. Once again, it's a little rough around the edges. Uh, we were still figuring out our audio setup. I was still figuring out how to edit properly. Uh, so it's, it's a little rough around the edges, but I think it's an interesting take considering where we started and where we're at now. Hopefully you think we've improved a little bit. But uh, this still stands as my all-time favorite Carpenter film. Uh, it's one of my favorite episodes we did for the run, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, forgive, again, the d different studio people. The, that was our very first studio. We're on our like fifth or sixth now. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, without further ado, this is Carpenter Revisited Episode 6 on The Thing. Welcome to episode six of Carpenter Revisited on the Arc of E Network. My name is Noah. And my name is Gavin. And we're the Blanchard Brothers, and it's finally here, uh, listeners. My favorite in the entire filmography of Mr. Carpenter, 1982's The Thing. I am so happy that we're here, and uh, can't wait to jump in and discuss this one with you, brother. As I remember... This is not your number one, which I'll forgive you for. Uh, you have Halloween up there, if I'm not mistaken. Of course. Halloween but this is your day. number two, uh, correct? Is this your number two? Um, yeah. Well, not to Bef put you on the spot. Before going into it, I mean, we really should we really should have had that one that you lost. Uh, just for reference, I don't remember where I stacked them. Uh, going into this, I probably would say it's number two. I don't know if that's going to change when we get to They Live Again, because They Live, for a long time, I never saw. And then when I finally got to it, I was like, oh, I like this one a lot. But I don't know if it's enough to uh, 
dethrone the thing. But yeah, it's it's up there. Yeah. Um. So we are coming off of Escape from New York, which was number two in the two-picture deal with Avco Embassies. And this is going to transition us into Carpenter's first major studio effort with Universal. Um, he's essentially a director for hire in this instance. Um, it's not his screenplay, but he did, as I understand, bring Bill Lancaster on board um, and was involved with working on it prior to being confirmed as a director. But anyways, he's working from a Howard Hawks original film, The Thing from Outer Space, um, as we've probably talked about before, and any casual Carpenter fan that's delved into him at all probably knows diehard Howard Hawks fan probably the director that he modeled his career after or most wanted to emulate uh, in everything he did but he uh, recounts a story on one of the special features that I watched he saw the original when he was around four or five so obviously made a huge impact yeah, on real him. big one yeah and so Universal decides they have this property and they want to rework it for modern audience and they picked John Carpenter. He has proven himself thus far as, again, being a guy who can take a small budget and put every single dollar up on the screen. Uh, we talked about The Fog and how that's a million-dollar movie that you know, you could stand right up there with a lot of the, the summer glossy releases from the day. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the, the Panavision uh, filming technique. But, yeah, let's uh, let's get into it a little bit. Obviously, this is one I kind of expect a lot of people, as with Halloween, if you're into Carpenter at all, I feel like you've probably delved pretty deeply into this one. But there's a, one of my favorite things about the thing is how layered it is and how many different levels it works on. So let's step back generally, and I'm going to let you uh, do us a little plot outline, brother. <clears throat> what year is it? It's 82, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> The year is 1982. The location, the Antarctic. Are you, you going to do the whole thing like this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go Unbeknownst to the men of Outpost 31, there is a stranger in their midst. A stranger that they cannot tell who or what it may become. That was terrible. That, that I, I'm not good at going. Basically, it's 1982. <laughs> There's these group of guys in the Antarctic. They're doing research. And one day out of the blue, this crazy uh, Norwegian fella in a helicopter chasing a gorgeous Malamute dog. You know, uh, He comes running up to the base, going crazy, and um, starts shooting. Winds up shooting one of their own in, this, in the leg and trying to kill this dog. And... Um, it's obviously the most action that's taken place at this outpost in a long time. And so uh, after that Norwegian guy gets killed, they say, hey, man, you know, he's, he's not far from here. Let's let's go up there and check it out. They go up and check it out, and they find out that this, the scientists from Norway or the Norwegians, they, they uncovered something in the ice, something that had been there since the dawn of time. And uh, they awoke something, and now that something is moved on to Outpost 31, and the rest of the film asked the question, how do I know if you're the thing or you're you? It's a pretty solid setup. Thank you, brother. Um, R.J. McCready, <laughs> helicopter pilot, U.S. Outpost 31. Yes, uh, much more to come on McCready. So one of the things I think uh, is most notable about the opening, we open in space. 
uh first yeah. time for carpenter back there since dark star and uh we see a uh, wonderfully constructed model of the spaceship uh, as it crash lands and then we get one of across all movies this has got to be in your top five one of the greatest title screens of any movie the burn-in effect of john carpenter's the thing is just it's so impactful grabs you from the immediate opening um i will uh throw a little homework at our listeners if you've never checked out uh the terror takes shape this was a it's about an hour and a half long documentary it was on the first uh proper like special edition release of the thing back on dvd that universal put out it's been left off of some of the subsequent blu-ray releases but i think uh shout factory's latest one oh, does yeah, have it back on there. on there uh they kind of put everything back together for it's that also one. got a bunch of really other good documentaries stuff about the the one called the men of outpost 31 Which i've yet to watch yet so i'm interested and it actually has it has probably the i'm gonna go ahead and say it the worst version of the thing but it has the original broadcast and a lot of the stuff was cut out you can it has go read the tv about broadcast on the dvd on the special features that's pretty cool yeah and like you, the whole thing not the whole just movie like segments so okay. it's it's shot Very down cool. it's only in 4.3 uh-huh. and the shittiest thing along with um kind of like blade runner uh which we can get into talking about how that mingles with this um, it has a bunch of narration. So like when they get to when they get to McCready and he's playing chess in the beginning, uh-huh. there's this voice that comes up, McCready, a helicopter pilot. This is this and this and this. Is Hopper. It, is it iconic or like is it No, any... it is not so good they're at all. Literally, I, okay. It literally is I telling you everything. Sight you... unseen. I hate this thing immediately because yeah. one of my favorite things about the thing is it has this massive cast and you know we're a little bit ago we talked about the fog and how that's kind of a, a sprawling cast where the characters are very underwritten. This is a movie where arguably they're just as underwritten, but those actors imbue all of those characters with just like such naturalism and everything. Those guys feel lived in. They feel like they've been there. And I love that the movie doesn't take a lot of time spelling out for you. Like, who does what, what the individual jobs are, or anything like that. But that's what this narration yeah. does, because when they that get to Hopper... That just seems like it would be so like, clunky. Literally, continue. like the scene where Hopper kills the Norwegian, it cuts as, Hopper, a 30-year army man, happy to be the leader of the Pope. It's like, I don't need... Like, you're telling me everything that I can surmise on my own from watching it, and... But it's it's terrible, right. and they cut I, a bunch of stuff out. It's a lot quicker. Wow. I but feel really bad for anybody who that was like their first introduction to the thing. I didn't even know that existed until yeah, you just it, brought it yeah, up. Yeah, but the, definitely the Blu-rays got that. A bunch of really good special features with different stuff with the cast. An interview with Mick Garris and John Carpenter talking about this, which is really good. You should definitely watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so one thing I think is, a, or okay, Terror Takes Shape which is the documentary that I was referencing, they go into the details of how the model was built and how the burn-in effect was done. It's very interesting how they describe it. I won't try and uh, do it justice here, but definitely check that out. It's a really awesome title treatment. The guy literally lays it all out, and then he's like, so it was really a pretty simple effect. And like, at, He's described it, and I'm like, I, I still don't understand like how the hell you did that, but okay, yeah. it's awesome. Um, anyways, so awesome title card, and then we hear something that, is a little surprising. We don't hear an iconic Carpenter dum, dum. score. We hear an iconic score, dum, but it's uh, Mr. Ennio Morricone. Dum, dum. Um, again, we'll get into more detail about the the production itself. But this is Carpenter working with a budget, and you know he kind of talks about how early on 
it was more out of necessity that he did the music than anything else. So it was just, you know, I didn't have any money. So I, and I, I was pretty and, quick and yeah. I was pretty cheap. And so I threw my own score on stuff. But in this case, he's you know, gladly said that he stepped aside and let a master uh, do his score. Obviously, Morricone's incredibly tied in with spaghetti westerns and all of his work with Sergio Leone. But um, yeah, this I would stack right up there with some of his most iconic work. And it should be noted, there's uh, additional music by Carpenter that's uncredited, and it's not really specific, like, what moments are him. And I w- wouldn't say that it's necessarily distinguishable. Because no, it's it all, all of the, flows all together. Of the same all vibe, the same for sure. Vibe, yeah. And honestly, like, Morricone's score, it feels like something Carpenter, like, tonally feels very yeah. appropriate for Carpenter, but it does have a little bit of a more broad, like, orchestral feel to it, Um a little more of a classic like studio sound to a score, I guess you could say. Um, so, anyways, that brings you in. Of course, you described uh, the husky being chased in by the uh, the chopper of uh, Swedes, right? Swedes. Yeah, yeah, Mac. They're Swedes. <laughs> yeah, they're um, Norwegian, Mac. Yeah, and they from, make several references to this, yeah. the fact that Kurt Russell. <laughs> you really want to say them crazy Swedes, huh? Like, yes. no, uh, come on, McCready. Um, so. We have this coming out. We were introduced to McCready in that brilliant chess scene uh, where he has the, the brilliant delivery of, is it cheating bitch or, li- or lying bitch to the I think computer it's cheating when, bitch. It, when it beats him? Um, we should know I just, this. We just say, watched it. But... From, from the jump, Kurt Russell, I mean, this can be said in pretty much every role, but those locks, dude, he's got some just one of the most luscious full heads of hair oh, yeah. I've ever seen, and it is on full display in the thing and his giant beard too. I know you've, we've got to post uh, your photo cause you've done him as Halloween or for Halloween uh, once. Correct. Didn't you do McCready? No, I never did. I thought you had the, uh, the chopper jacket and the big old hat. I thought you did that for one year. No, maybe you just have an outfit. That I think I do like just have an outfit. No, the only bearded guys I did was like sons okay. of anarchy. Well, we're going to have to do some cosplay then. And, uh, yeah, we can each do our McCready's cause we got about from now on, we just both get, right now. Let's just get dressed up as the characters when we do this, when we record. You know? Yeah. Just, but you know, not film it like a video. Cast. No, we just, just literally sit here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't wait for big trouble. In little China. I'm going to go yeah. full low pan. It's going to be great. <laughs> full low pan. Um, yeah, so we're introduced to McCree from the get-go, again, very akin to how he's established and escapes. Just like, I just like this dude immediately. He just seems like he's not going to take any shit from anybody. He's very no-nonsense. And uh, we're kind of, we work our way through the camp. Uh, and going along with, you know, that terrible TV version that you're describing to me, I remember the first several times I watched this, and even on this rewatch, it's like, I don't know if I know every single individual character's name. Like, I know most of the big ones, but there's a solid, like, four or five in that cast that, like, I, I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're called. Like, I could probably, if I struggled, come up with it for you. But anyways, we get a broad introduction to everybody, and uh, we have our old captain who, you know, gets to pull his, his six-shooter and take out the, the Swede. Um, kind Norwegian. of initial, Yeah. Excuse me, I, I that literally I was not trying to make a joke there. I was not trying to make a joke there, but um, I think it's interesting. I can kind of branch off and talk about this for a little bit. From from that point, it kind of seems like, hey, this like older dude, um, maybe he's gonna be your kind of like lead protagonist. Like he stepped up. He seems like kind of like the dude in charge and everything. And um, apparently, when they were originally conceiving it, when Lancaster and Carpenter were 
kind of initially working on it. This was pre-Kurt Russell being directly involved with it. Um, the approach was to have more of a general ensemble where there would be no kind of inkling of like, this is kind of your dude. Yeah. And apparently, of course, he had just worked with Russell on New York and just as friends, they were discussing like, hey, I'm working on this remake of the thing. There's this there's this character. And apparently just kind of organically started talking about this just as buddies because he's not attached at this point. And at a certain point, Carpenter's like, well, do you, you know, how's your schedule looking? Like, do you want to take this on with me? Like, you kind of helped co-create this character. And apparently, like, once he was attached, there was a little bit more of a structure to the screenplay where it's like, you kind of know from the jump that McCready's kind of your guy that you are going to be with maybe for a little while. But that's what's so interesting when we get further into the movie, when we start playing around with, well, is he the thing? Does it matter? Because half the people there think he is. Like, you know, there's that whole standoff. Um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting that like, as you're being introduced to all the characters, you're not really sure, like, you know, what the levels of anybody are. You're not sure, you know, who's a higher ranking officer, except for the dude who steps up in the very opening. Um, I mean, he's the only like armed person there. Like he is not a scientist Mm -hmm. and it's really weird that like you have the obvious scientists and you have Kurt Russell, who's the helicopter pilot. You have the guy who's like the security officer, police guy, but like, what do what does uh, Childs uh, David Keith yeah Keith David Keith David yeah. not really what sure is, what Childs does what does Childs do what is I mean I know T K Carter's character I cannot yeah can't uh, think Windows of is like the radio guy yeah which glasses. did you did you catch the men of the outpost thing like apparently halfway through shooting that he just said John. I think I want everybody to just call me Windows. It's like because these were all these are all like New York actors who studied right. like Juilliard and shit like that. And he's and so John just goes, "Hey guys, he wants you all to call him Windows from now on." And so they <laughs> called him Windows. That's and the awesome. the guy who plays um, what's the dude that's getting high all the time? Uh, what is oh, his the name? One who's a, yeah, he's always watching The Price Is Right. And yeah, no, he's one of my favorites too. Um, but anyway, he, he remembers being like, what the fuck is this kid doing? Like, call him Windows? We'll call what him do you do? You know? But, and then another crazy story, just to get on that from there, I didn't notice it until, like, um, he brought it up. But apparently, right after Keith David got this, he got in a car wreck and fucked his hand up. Okay. So for the first half of the movie, there's an obvious attempt for him to hide his hand and they show the scene where he's watching the prices right he rolls a joint watches the prices right keith davis laying there but uh-huh. his hand his left hand is out of shot then when he like kind of peeks around the corner whenever blair's going crazy his left hand is always not on screen so i just that's a really good one to watch for neat stuff because they talk about yeah. that and they talk about the time they almost all died in a whiteout mm-hmm. like the bus they were taking from the base camp up to go shoot like going around a corner and the white, they just hit a whiteout. And so like they all stopped and Kurt Russell like instantly jumped up to the front of the bus. It's like everybody slide. And they like all got down and said, all right, one by one, get over here and let's shift the weight. Mm-hmm. And like literally they almost all died on the way to the set. Like I think that the isolation plays into it, but I also know that they kept most of those guys and not Kurt, but most of the supporting cast they had two weeks of rehearsal for them, which Carpenter said like he had never done before and probably yeah. would never do again. But I think what you're talking about with everything feeling so um, yeah, he makes, fleshed out and real was because they had that time to be together to get to know one, one another, and then they just got to go play. They weren't worried about like you know 
their character, their direction, mm-hmm. what they were going to do. They'd all been together yeah. for a while. He talks about that a good bit in the uh, the Terror Take Shape doc that I watch, and how it was the longest period of pro- post or ugh, excuse me pre production that he'd ever had before or since, and how it that was just completely invaluable. And from the actor's perspective, uh, Charlie Hallahan, who plays Norris, um, he talks about how that period of time of like getting to run through the script and like kind of bond with the guys and everything before they actually went out and started shooting this thing was essential because they had to be on point and know what they were doing because once they got there, this became an effects movie and everything was on the time clock of when the effects were working, when they weren't, how long it took you to reset up after you know a failed attempt. And we'll get more. I got tons to say about Rob Bottin and his contribution to the film. But uh, yeah, that uh, pre-production period, I think, is a huge part of why this movie is as successful. And getting into those little details that you can look for, it's so claustrophobic and does have so many different characters at play. It It's one of those things that... The more times you rewatch it, you start to notice little threads of like when certain characters are missing, where there's tiny moments of mystery to be left for like, well, what's this guy doing right now? And it just all adds to that constant unease of like, you know, we're with these characters, but we don't know what's going on in the rest of this camp. And the sheer number of guys that we know are up there, it's like, you know, half of them could be this thing. One of them could be this thing. And the way that the movie plays with that is just so enjoyable. Again, I, I can't get that TV cut out of my head. The idea of taking all of that, like that layer of it and kind of removing some of it by defining who these characters are and spelling everything out for you. Not to mention just, it's in 4.3. It is not in widescreen. There, yes, and this the is scene a, where they're all, they're looking at the, at the Norwegian running in. It's just two people, not the entire like four that were standing there. And this is it's a ridiculous. gorgeous Panavision movie with, um, some of the best matte paintings like achieved as of that time by a gentleman who worked with uh, Alfred Hitchcock on like the birds and tons yeah. of other stuff. Um, and yeah, the to imagine that you would cut that off by messing with the aspect ratio is just like that's that's so not the way to watch this movie. So um, we move into the camp and. We've had this event, as you described, they go out to the Norwegian camp to figure out what's been going on, and they find something in the ice that is just like, okay, what the hell are we dealing with at this point? And they bring back some of the remains, they start doing tests and stuff, um, and we kind of slowly build that narrative of them figuring out what this thing is actually and what it's capable of, and, you know... McCready seems pretty quick on the uptake to begin with, like, accepts it from, from the jump the second it's kind of laid out to him. He's like, all right, this is the situation. This is what we're dealing with. And some of the other guys, you know, whether they're playing it this way because they are, in fact, the thing or not, which, again, is so brilliant about the movie. But there's definitely some others who are, are like, just can't quite wrap their heads around it until it's, like, staring them in the face. Um, which will stare them in the face and probably the worst but greatest scene in the movie only worse because it deals with puppy dogs and i don't like when puppy dogs get hurt yes which i don't think any of them did on set i feel like that's a yeah that's definitely an intense one for any animal lover to watch but yeah basically the uh 
the stealth intruder invader, the way that the thing has chosen to inf- infiltrate the space is through the dog in the opening. And of course, we're which like, is smart as yeah. fuck. We're like, why the hell are they shooting at this poor little dog? And it's like, no, that's the, that's the thing you need to be looking out for. So, um, he's paired up very early on, uh, with it's Bert, correct? Clark. Clark, excuse me. Clark, uh, is the dog wrangler, um, who, from the jump, we're just kind of on try. He's a little bit more of a loner, like doesn't seem to interact with uh, the rest of the dudes as much. And so we're kind of on edge by him uh, to begin with. And the dog is sent into a kennel with uh, the rest of the uh, the troop, if you will. And we're treated to our first of just an array of amazing visual effects. Um, and I would jump in and talk about Rob Bottin right here, except for... The first uh, shots that we see, not a Rob Bottin effect. Mr. Stan Winston uh, of Alien fame actually came in to work on that first uh, <clears throat> first puppet that you see with the kind of lumped and the dog head that twirls out towards you, uh, which is actually a hand puppet. Again, watch this documentary. The details on the effects and the behind the scenes are just you know invaluable. It's pretty awesome. Um, so apparently Botine dealing with all of this effects work and posts and everything needed to alleviate just a little piece of it. And so Stan Winston came in, worked on this. But then what we do see through the rest of that, see all the other like transformation, the flower kind of head thing with teeth in it. That's all Botine, the the arms that pull it into the rafters. Yeah, see, and I, I always it. wondered, and I, I've been forever since I watched that documentary, but that does make a lot of sense now because I do feel like that first one is not necessarily the same look and feel as the rest, does have, but yeah. that does lend to the idea that it can be literally anything. Mm-hmm. And Things from really, other worlds, other humans, all meshed into one. That, to me, is where they truly like cracked the code on this movie as a remake. Carpenter talks about how, in the original, he essentially boils down to like a Frankenstein monster. He's just this big, broad, imposing yeah. force or whatever. And there's vague references to, like, he's essentially like a vegetable person. He can replicate himself and, like... There's aspects of him imitating things, but nothing like what they come up with um, in the context of that. And apparently a lot of that was Botine bringing that to the table of like, well, I have this idea of like, what if it's a bunch of different things? What if what we see as it's trying to emulate whatever it's trying to emulate is everything that it's ever been? And that could be anything because we presume that this entity has been across the galaxy, across dimensions, like other worlds, other planets. And so it could look like anything. And what you get from that is just some of the most spectacular, imaginative, creative effects work. And like most of it's horribly grotesque, but it's so like so well made and crafted and photographed that it's so compelling to look at. And the actors talk about like coming in um, to this um, the effect shop and seeing just like works in progress and like just being absolutely blown away by it. And yeah, so Botine apparently, uh, along with the uh, storyboard artist, um, whose name escapes me at the moment, but apparently came from the world of comic books, and so there's uh, you can find a lot of these online, and some of them are featured in the uh, documentary we were discussing. Um, but they have these great, uh, great storyboards for all the major effect sequences, and apparently they just kind of collaborated together and dreamed up all of this crazy stuff and brought it back to Carpenter, and he was like, great do you know how to do any of this and Rob Bottin was like um n- no but I'll, I'll figure it out basically 
um, essentially, you know, writing a check that at that point he might have not been able to cash this. Again, it absolutely amazes me. This kid is 21, 22 years old when he's working on this movie. Huge universal picture, like probably like as far as he's concerned, infinite, infinite uh, budget as far as effects go. And what he delivers, again, I don't think... It's hard to think of things even from the day that top it for pure just spectacle. The All of those effects just really, really stick with you because they're so batshit. They're just like, yeah, who I mean, would ever think of that? And we'll get into the remake uh, in a little while. But You've never seen I, anything like it then or since. Yes. And with the remake, again, them going full digital with it, you would think that would open up the possibilities to be even more imaginative and crazy with what you come up with. But it seemed to have the reverse effect where it's yeah, just I didn't like, like it at all. Yeah. Not, and again, that seeing like what would be achievable if you approached it with practical effects today, approaching that same technique, because he even talks about in the documentary, um, how he watches it now and he sees like, Oh, I would, I could do that better today. Or I would have done this slightly differently and everything like criticizing his own work. And it's like other people watch this and it's held up as like this, you know, it doesn't get any better than this for, yeah. for horror effects. And so, yeah, Botin's collaboration, you know, cannot be denied in this movie. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about this overall is Carpenter when he, you know, finally had risen to the state and had a budget at his command, was working for a major studio, he aligned himself with just the best pod. He brings along Dean Cundy, who he's worked with beforehand and has been essential for establishing what a Carpenter movie looks like. So he brings him along, but he gets Rob Oteen, who he's worked with on The Fog. Uh, he played Blake and did some of the visual effects there and gives this kid a shot, essentially, and paid off in dividends apparently it was a really rough shoot because of some of those effects and like trying to figure it out on the spot but it's like some of this stuff had never been done before conceived before so you know they went through all sorts of things with lighting the set on fire sometimes because of just the toxic fumes that some of this stuff was made out of there's all sorts of great like on-set stories for that stuff um but yeah getting back uh i guess we'll jump a little bit more back into the plot um once it is uh, established, every every principal character sees the incident with the dog. So, like, we all are on the same page that something fucked up is going on here. Something otherworldly is happening. And basically, um, through doing some DNA analysis on the remains and some, like, great, for their day, they're rudimentary, but pretty cool, like, computer effects that are essentially serve as, like, awesome exposition that kind of spell out for you this is what this thing does it takes you over at a cellular level imitates you every and piece of it is a whole of it there. yeah yes um and so that's kind of laid out for us because i think again it it doesn't feel clunky to me or like pandering at this point because i feel like when it was made to really get people to wrap their heads around like what they're seeing and what this thing is supposed to be you needed a little bit more context of trying to like kind of talk you through what it was and i feel like it would have been really easy to just be like oh fuck it it's a monster movie like but i like the all of the kind of like pseudoscience surrounding yeah it. and it yeah. works because they are scientists like if you don't have that then i don't believe that it's a bunch of scientists quote unquote mm -hmm. up in 
up in the Arctic doing this research, which none of them call each other doctor. That's the weird thing. No one, none of them yeah. is ever referred to as a doctor, but yet they're all scientists at this outpost up here doing whatever. And, you know, I, I think that the, the explanation and, and the special effects for explaining what it can do, how it can replicate all that. I think it's kind of, it, it alleviates the need to like ask questions down the road of well, why did it do this? Why do that? Well, because it can do anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It's your, not necessarily you're envisioning your worst nightmare, but whenever you see anything from the thing, it doesn't take away from it. Cause you're like, well, yeah, it could do that. Yeah. It establishes the rules very early, which is something we talked about in the fall. We didn't know the rules. Yeah. But uh, here we know exactly what it can do. There's a great moment uh, in the documentary that I keep referencing. Again, that's terror takes shape. Um, but Carpenter talks about finally seeing the completed effect of Norris's head um, dropping off the table, turning into a spider-legged monster, and walking away. And he says, like, that's the moment when he knew, like, he had it, basically, because he didn't want people to get to the theater and be laughing at a dude in a rubber suit. And he said that was the moment he knew he had it because it's like, regardless like nobody's gonna laugh at this thing because you've never seen it and yes you could say oh, it's goofy it's like it's a spider like monster or whatever but you can't believe what you've seen because the effect is accomplished so organically and realistic looking that you're like i literally think i just saw a dude's head rip off of its own body sprout legs and antenna and walk off like it is everything is achieved again through Teen's amazing effects, Cundy's amazing lighting, and everything that Carpenter does to fit all those elements together. And, yeah, I just, I remember him specifically referencing that, and I'm like, yeah, that's one of the most effective moments. That that chest uh, chomping scene no, transitioning yeah, into the, the spider head monster is incredible. I also love, uh, it's prior to that, if I'm not mistaken, who's uh, the ginger with the bald head? He's got the big parka his character name escapes me at this moment but when he is mid transition out in uh out in the snow and they they it's, kick, not, it's not fuchs because yeah. fuchs is the one that fuchs burns himself glasses with the full beard yeah he burns um, himself to save himself mm-hmm. um but yeah that moment though where he's they catch him mid transition and at first you're like oh oh it's him and they're like no it's not him and slow pan back and you see the crazy ass arm attached to him and, and that he, just like uh, like it's yelling and whatnot and yeah. like that oh my god that is one of the most unsettling like bone chilling moments in the entire movie and um well it plays to the the thing itself because in some of the stuff i watched they talked about there were scenes where like some of these guys were going to get um like one of the guys got murdered by like being strangled, like stuck with something and strangled when he was uh-huh. going to look at the dogs, and another one of them wound up impaled by a um, a shovel on the back of a of a of a door, and they kind of thought about like this thing isn't a murderer; it literally wants to blend in and hide. Right. So most of the you never see anybody get overtaken yeah, never... except for Blair in the yeah. end when Blair comes back in the end. You don't see anybody physically with the thing, and that I mean that adds to who's who but you this thing does not want to 
like a Frankenstein monster, yeah. and I don't it, think Frankenstein it, yeah. monster. It wouldn't doesn't hurt anybody, function but... like a traditional horror movie as much as it's not something stalking them. Like all the interaction with it is it trying to evade and not be discovered. Yeah, because yeah. from there you get to when you're talking about when when he um because we have the dog scene and then we have the scene where they can't find Fuchs and they realize he burned himself and then once um once. Uh, whoever that is, the ginger guy, once he, ever he dies, McCready basically says like, this thing doesn't want to get us. It wants to hide. Yeah. And I know I'm still all. human. It's that the remains are still, they yeah. discovered that, that the remains still I know are I'm still human. Yeah. And I, and if you were all this thing, then you just attacked me right now. So some of you are still human too. Mm-hmm. So we got to watch our backs. Watch the guy you're with. Only eat your own food made out of cans. Only out of cans. Make your own food. You know, and we get to my favorite and this just kind of to me speaks to the kind of like terror that I appreciate is when they're all standing outside and I think they've they've put Blair away. Yes, Blair at this goes point, crazy. Uh, Mr. Wilford Brimley has lost his shit. Very much so. Um, but yeah, so Wilford Brimley goes crazy and once they subdue him, uh, Hopper, the big sheriff guy, he kind of says, maybe I'm not fit to be the leader and... They kind of have a power struggle. Who's going to do it? And Child sets up like, Child steps up and says, I'll do it. And McCready basically says, nah. And Clark, with a knife, you know, basically says like, hell you will. Like him and Child's kind of mm-hmm. have a thing back and forth. And McCready says, I'm the least tempered of it. Like, let me, I, I'll be in charge now. Right. And so they agree to put Blair out in his shop, lock him in it or he can't leave. And there's a scene, which is my favorite scene in the movie they're all standing around out there and he says okay you guys go back to the house or you guys go back to the main base camp yada 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 me and i don't know tk carter's character name i really should we're gonna go out to my shop and he says what for And he's like because when i left i turned the lights off and the lights are still on at mccready's place and this is after you've gotten the like iconic like him telling everybody what's going on leaving the recording deal but it's just the creepiness of like if you weren't my brother i'd be really upset because I was about to bring that up at some point because that is my share. I don't know if we've discussed this probably, probably have uh, prior, but that's my favorite single scene too. And for me, that's when you know the movie's falling or firing on all cylinders and really has you because if that line of dialogue and that quick cut to his shed with the light on scares you more than anything you've seen in the movie thus far or in the rest of it, that, truly means that the whole setup of paranoia and not trusting that unease of like who is around me that that element is working for you in the movie and that again is what i talk about with this movie works on a lot of different levels it has amazing effects that totally wow you but it's that deep-seated paranoia and the way that those characters kind of play off each other and the not knowing and questioning each other is so brilliantly threaded that it really starts to seep into if you're watching it. And the isolation is another huge part of that. They set up very early on, um, you know, just where they are located, the amount of snowfall, all of that stuff. And I can't really think of another movie other than the mass, my favorite horror movie of all time, The Shining, that does such a great job of setting up very matter-of-factly and, you know, very concisely from the jump the spatial relations of everything, all the sets that you're going to see, the the entire space that this action is going to take place in, 
and you immediately know that there's no getting out of it. Just that impending doom and dread of like, we are trapped here. There is no escape. Something wants to kill us. We have to deal with it somehow. And I feel like that's why those are two that are very, very high on my list. Again, Shining's my favorite thing. Probably overall might might be like my three or fourth favorite horror movie. Um, and that's, again, a huge part of it. And what... Uh, we should talk about that a little bit because I feel like the the effects themselves, again, they're not scary to me. Even watching them as a kid, it was more of like a wow factor of like, whoa, that's that's nuts or that's yeah. crazy or I've never seen anything like that before. And, um, you know, it's more the times I've gone back to it and it's been a kind of a gradual reveal to me. And I think that's why it's grown higher and higher in my uh uh, list of carpenter films is it really wasn't until i had been really deep into film and kind of just exploring it more that the character work in it comes through to me and all of that slowly threaded and myst- the mysterious elements of just not knowing where characters are and everything that's the thing i love about it and it being more of a slow burn it's probably carpenter's longest movie if i'm not yeah, mistaken yeah i definitely feel like it's, it's over his, two hours yeah. and you know, it's from the jump, you know, there's some serious stuff going on and it's not a slow burn because you get these steady reveal and these set great set pieces of oh, yeah. like creature effect after creature effect. But it's the times in between where things are breathing or whatever, where you're just like, who, you know, who's going to turn next? I don't know. Like, you know, it, it feels like anything could happen to any of these guys at any moment. And I mean, that level it. of tension is just really hard to achieve. And especially on multiple rewatches, but every time. That's how I know it's just it has hooked me in again. I'm right there with them and like, and just the oh, um the scene where the the scene after that where T K Carter comes back is like, I cut him loose. What? And yeah, he's, and we he's don't got see McCready, any of that sequence. He's, he's got, got McCready's um underwear, which they think okay if it cuts through your clothes, which it kind of sets up that whole theory. McCready may be the thing, but it's right. it it sets you know it may I think it may shred through your clothes because they found. Fuchs's clothes mm-hmm. when it was trying to change and all that. And so, you know, they, they basically like would lock him out. They go to, they try basically try and lock him out. And they're like, well, what if we're wrong? Well, then we're wrong. You know, like we're wrong and he's not, yeah, the, oh, it's well, gotten to that point it's gotten where, to the point where like, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. We're going to lock him out to keep us safe. And of course you get that. My, one of my favorite shots is that door, the door latch mm-hmm. turning for him to come in. We don't know who that, that could be McCready, but we still don't know. Yes. He does break in like shortly afterwards. But- yeah. Yeah. But he breaks in with a flamethrower and a thing of dynamite. Like, and you touched me, we're all going. Like, I just, that's how crazy it's gotten. Like, that's and where it, you know, comes. Yep, that's comes where it really ahead. turns. And honestly, it feels like he's starting to come to the realization that, like, none of us are going to survive this. Like, the main thing that's of importance here is that this thing doesn't survive. Like, it's going to try and freeze itself, all this stuff. But that that scene with him coming back in leads to arguably the greatest set piece in the entire movie. It's a scene that's been referenced and everything yeah. from uh, South Park has a great bits about the thing, but um, yeah, it is the, uh, the blood test scene. We, we were waiting to get to it a little bit, but this, this is the most tense thing in the entire movie. Oh yeah, um, definitely. it's just, and it's so brilliantly played because there's reveals of like, well, this person, like they find out that Clark who it was like, Oh, of course he's one. 
wasn't one at all. It was just trying to defend the dog. Like, just natural human instinct of, like, not wanting this animal to get hurt or not being able to process, like, this is not a dog. This is an entity from another planet. Yeah, like the one who's had the most exposure way. to it. And then literally, and the, the actor plays him, talks about it. It's like, it's so shitty how I die in the movie. Like, it's nothing. He tries to rush McCready and McCready shoots him point blank. Because what else would you do in that Exactly. Scenario? And yeah. so when they go back and they, they're doing the blood test, he tests Clark and nothing happens. Because yeah, the idea it, here is that if the thing, if one piece of the thing is all like just one on a cellular level, it can be the entire thing. A little bit of blood would be part of the whole organism. So he mm-hmm. devises this idea that we'll heat up the blood and we'll poke it with a hot needle. And if it has a reaction, then we'll know who's the thing. It's trying to save itself. Essentially. You know, it will try. Yeah. It'll try and save itself. And of course, you know, he, he goes through, he says, I'll tell you what I already know. And he does it to the blood that he drew himself. And you realize McCready at this point is not the thing. He is not one but of But there is also, of course, the argument that McCready has uh, set up the blood test. Well, he does have an assistant, essentially, I guess, for impartiality. But I was going to say, there there is the argument that, like, he could have switched the blood or, like, made sure it wasn't his. Um, but they also, or, or the fact that since he knows what he's doing, he knows it's coming and, and right. not that. But the thing is, is like if he's the thing, and he doesn't have that reaction, why would the the thing that has the reaction? Why would that reaction happen? Now, right. granted, this all happens bef- after one of the best, if not the best, re- like reveals, cuts, whatever you want to call it, and that Norris goes into cardiac arrest mm-hmm. while they're all deciding. Like, what to do while McCready's got him or whatever, like, you know, held hostage what he's going to do. And they go to revive him. And I every fucking time it does it because it doesn't matter how many times you watch it. You get to count out every time it happens when he goes yeah. back for clear and that stomach opens up and chomps on his hands. And then everything just starts to flapping and flailing around <laughs> like it does do. Like, that's just that is that's that shit, man. And yeah. it's fucking great. That is the moment that uh, famously Guillermo del Toro talks about people just like losing their minds in the theater that he saw it in, in Mexico City. And he said it was just like a religious experience for him. He had never seen anything like that. And that was his like, I want to make movies. Like yeah. that was his moment in the way that we talk about Rodriguez uh, watching New York as a kid. Um, But yeah, dude, that... That chest chomp is just so incredible. This is a good, uh, I'll jump in with probably my last Botine story. So they had uh, Charlie Hallahan in his neck and uh, arms, are, that's him. Everything else you see in that sequence is like plaster cast and everything rigged to open. So they do it the first time and apparently like the tendrils that you described coming out, it basically came out like a fountain. He describes it looking like a Vegas fountain and like just... The effect did not work at all, and it was like a one-time thing because, again, it it tears open. It's like an internal mechanism that tears the stomach open that they had built. And um, so apparently the effect goes off. Like, it looks ridiculous. And he talks about Carpenter, like, just being like, and thank you very much, Mr. Botine. Like, after it ends and him immediately being like, oh, my God, like, we're going to have to set up this whole thing. Apparently Charlie Hallahan spends, like, most of this shooting day stuck in that rig. Um... But when they break away to do the uh, the head detaching itself, obviously that's not Charlie Hallahan in that shot. It's just uh, an effects puppet. 
but there's guys in the base of the table that are like pumping it out and have all these tubes and stuff and the like stringy green like viscousy textured stuff yeah. that they went in there apparently just like melted plastic and gum and like all this terrible toxic shit and they're about to uh to film it and carpenter is like hey wait we need fire in here because it's like mccready's using the flamethrower so in this shot like we should have some flame beneath the frame so they go and grab a flame bar and they they're about to light it and light it light finally it sparks and apparently just the whole the whole set goes up like immediately and they've got they said it's a very confined space and they've got like a bunch of their crew in there put everything out everybody's still alive thankfully and he said it looked like a cartoon like they're all covered in like black soot and stuff <laughs> and yeah again had to reset all of that so the that famous scene that you see is the second takes like both times and thank god they got it but um and again, I the other side note that I will bring up, apparently on posts in this movie and just him trying to hit all these effects and being a young man, like apparently he essentially lived on the Universal backlot for like a year straight trying to finish this thing and just like working day and night almost killed him. Like he had health problems, all sorts of stuff like exhaustion, but it cannot be denied what he put on the screen for its day still tan- stands the test of time and Again, it's just even more amazing to me that he was only 22 when he did that shit. So you that'll be my my final shout shout out to Rob Botin. Uh, you always got, work for the job you hit, want. Yeah, work for the next job. Exactly. Yeah, we've uh, so we've hit most of the big creature effects. That's why I feel like we'll uh, wrap up with him. But as we kind of settle into the back half of the movie, um, it's just it's a lot of cat and mouse and distrust. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so we come back to the second half of the uh, the blood test scene, which we haven't gotten to yet. Because it's interrupted by uh, all of the that. spider thing. Yeah. yeah. So you get um, back and he he's one by one is um, it's almost like you're not expecting another effects beat no, there not at all. because you've just had such an astounding one. And that's why I feel like it's even more effective at catching you off guard because just like I mean, he pans yeah. to everyone's face and you think, OK, usually the third or first or fourth person, you know, it, what's going to be that. He's already had one windows has already been cleared like windows is right. good. So he gets he lets windows get the flamethrower. And of course, one does it next with the, the next one that does it. He hits it and the, the blood itself jumps out of the Petri dish. Mm-hmm. And um, God, who is Palmer? Is that his name? Yes. Palmer. Yeah. Palmer just starts again, twitching and flailing. And like it's it, here we go again. And so much that like his head opens up and he chomps window's face it picks oh, there's windows that great up. like rag doll shot but one of the more wonky effect shots but i still love it of just like the rag doll body yeah inside the half like chompers and everything yes, yeah just just um, crazy stuff. and then probably um probably my second favorite of the movie i know that you gentlemen have been through a lot but i do not but what does he say so, but you please, I do not want to spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. Oh my god, yes, great like delivery. It's fucking oh, dude. So we get to, we've kind of all figured out who's who and who's not, mm-hmm. and they basically 
they have to go. Do they have to go out? They're gonna go test Blair. They're gonna go see what they're gonna. I think go that test? was the idea, but basically they find that he is not in his shed anymore. No, he has actually like tunneled and started to build another spacecraft. Yes, which we kind of uh, glossed over the whole sequence where they go out and discover the the craft in the ice again. I'll shout out the uh, the map paintings and that because apparently they achieved it with like very little onset stuff. A lot of it was done in post. But it's flawless as far as I'm concerned. Even on a Blu-ray transfer, like yeah, the shit still holds up really today. Great. Just gorgeous photography up there in general. Um, and again, there's just there's something about like a snowy atmosphere um, with like this and the shining. That's just it's just creepy. It's just moody, and immediately makes you think of isolation. Uh, more modern day. The only thing I can really uh, not a spectacular movie overall, but like Thirty Days of Night does a really good job yeah. playing with like the the snowfall being a like ominous thing. Um. So, yeah, now maybe we can uh, start to uh, start to dip into the ending, which is one of my the favorites. bleakest. Uh, yes, bleakest of all time. And so, uh, McCready has has stepped up. We know we know he's the dude who's gonna handle shit at this point, and. Eventually, he's confronted with basically the Wilford Brimley monster, uh, what Blair looks like now, and it's pretty intense. Uh, they there's that awesome sequence with like it rolling under the uh, boards, the floorboards, and like, the he jumps over it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but all of that, so huge kind of action set piece finale blows up the thing. Yeah, fuck you too. <laughs> great last oh my god just kurt russell as mccready i feel like we haven't even done it enough justice but it goes without saying i just love like i love him as an actor in anything but these carpenter performances they're so they're so effortlessly badass to me and i feel like that's why they're so badass he's not again it's not that like 80s macho machismo like there's not a ton of one-liners and stuff like he just, he just, he feels like a real dude in a heightened circumstance who's just gonna deal with it, and I like that like pragmatic yeah, I mean, aspect the, of a protagonist in as the opposed 80s, to didn't, you didn't, know a hulked out action hero. Who's wasn't just a beard like kind of a signifier that you were gay back in the day? At some point, did they? Not... I feel like coming out of the seven, any kind of big mustache, you would miss maybe. I don't know. So basically, know. you probably have a reading of this where people are like, oh, it's about like homophobia and like the isolation of who's gay and who's not gay carpenter vaguely references uh aids like you could look at the the virus or the the alien entity is and not knowing who has it and the the terrifying nature of that uh uh, something that comes internally that you don't have like control over um and anyways okay so let's get back to the ending and we'll talk about how this is kind of the first chapter in uh the apocalypse trilogy we'll get into that in just a sec so Blows up the final creature, and we're left at this point. We got McCready, and we got Childs, played by Keith David, who's been um M.I.A. Kind of, since yeah, he's been since gone this for a little whole... bit. So we're really we're not sure what's going on with either of these guys. Yeah, we should make it clear they all agree that they need to basically they need to blow. They plan to blow this thing up. They're basically like, you know what, this thing wants to retreat into the cold. We got to destroy Let's light everything. things up around here. And yeah. so they basically set fire to the entire base, thinking that if we can't make it out of this thing, at least we can prevent this thing from going to Earth. Because they establish um, earlier in the film, if this thing makes it to a populated area, like 2,700, 27,000 hours. It's like, or no, 2,700. That's it. It's there's, no, like, there's no fighting this thing back. So it's literally like 
they are the last line of defense. And I kind of love, that's just something I like in narratives in general, but people kind of accepting their fate and knowing that, like, okay, I'm not going to make it out of this, but I can save, like, a ton of other people or do kind of, like, a selfless act. Um, That's a really cool thing uh, for your protagonist. So we are left with uh, Childs and McCready, and we get into just my might be my favorite carpenter ending of all time we'll we will definitely do an episode specifically about the endings but they kind of have a brief dialogue with each other if it's like i don't know if you're who you say you are i don't know if you are um and kurt russell just says how about we just wait around see what happens and they're sitting there like chugging some whiskey back and forth go ahead and give me your fan theory in just a second but we fade to black with this ambiguity of is our, you know, our faithful protagonist, was he the thing all along? Um, in this final moment, has he turned in his contact with Blair? Is Child's the thing and he's about to turn him into it? Are they both human and they're just going to die, but they saved the day? But that not knowing and cue the uh, incredibly moody score from Ennio Morricone again to to take us out. And you're left with one of the, the bleakest, uh, most unsettling endings to any movie um and uh so the whole if i'm not mistaken i think you're looking this up as we're speaking but uh the whole basic theory is that uh the bottle at the end the liquor bottle is actually filled with gasoline because it was supposed to be a molotov a, cocktail that they were right. to use and basically he makes child's taste or he tastes i forget child's drinks it right and he just kind of smiles because he says, you know, I don't know if you're who you say you are, but not, neither of us is in any condition to try and worry about it right, right now. You know, let's just sit here and see what happens. And so Childs drinks it. And when he does, McCready kind of has this slight smirk. Yeah. Slight smirk. Like he's like, shit. Yep. You know what? Uh, I was going to make a Molotov cocktail out of that, but I didn't. So that's pure gasoline in there. And, and Child just drank, drank it, it like, like it was normal. nothing. And so, if you were a human being, you would not be able to do that. You would spit so, it back up. Yeah, that's a. I love that theory, but it, you know, it can't be understated. What I love about the movie more than anything is that you do not know. And as fun as it is to speculate over whether he was at the entire time, who was maybe it at different points in the movie before it was revealed to you, um, and I love the way the editing just plays around with that and just the where characters are throughout the movie. But yeah, I love that you don't know. I I would never want to have a confirmed thing. Apparently they did shoot an ending because it was thought that maybe this would be a little bit too bleak of a way to go. But, um, the original ending apparently shows McCready getting out to safety. He's the lone survivor. And as I understand, there's not even like a passing, like, Ooh, last minute scare or like, unsettling ending where oh maybe he is still the thing it's just like no he made it out of the situation he's fine it shows you that he survived so apparently they shot this it, it does exist somewhere i think you can find it online it may be on some of the uh the dvd releases or blu-ray but i'm so glad that it ends where it does and i understand that it's it's as bleak as you can get for a, a studio movie even in that in that era and kind of surprising that they they let him keep it honestly but Again, it goes down as one of my favorite endings to any movie, and definitely up there uh, 
or his endings, which are all fantastic, as we've discussed. So, um, I think it goes without saying, I alluded to as much beforehand, this is a 5 out of 5 for me. Um, this is my all-time favorite Carpenter film. I feel like it works on every level. You've got awesome effects, great just array of character actors. You got Kurt Russell, who you can't go wrong with. Um, great setting, great just mood and feel to the entire proceedings. Like it's it's terrifying on an intellectual level and a conspiratorial level. And then it also has these awesome effects that just blow you away. I, I love everything about it. It gets more and more rich for me every time I rewatch it. I feel like I find like a little element that I didn't get before. And again, I like that it's it's lengthy in the way that like The Shining is. The Shining is a movie that I also feel like I get more and more out of every time I watch it because it just kind of lulls you in with its pace. And um, yeah, so five star for me. Yeah, uh, it's, you, it's my five star too. Um, before we before we I give you mine, I'm, we're gonna go back to it real quick. Apparently, that Dean Cundy and John Carpenter discussed doing some kind of camera trick to cue you in on who the thing was. And Dean Cundy says, if you notice in each one of the shots where the thing is there, the tip off is there's like a glint or a gleam in their eye, like an eye line. Uh And so he says, you know, that's something to look out for when we see that. So I'm going to play this final scene and I'm going to look and see if I can tell who's who. Feel free to uh, watch along with us. Where were you, Charles? Thought I saw Blair. I went out after him. Got lost in the storm. Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. pick up on anything no glints but you definitely see that McCready hands him the bottle same bottle of JB he's been drinking mm-hmm. same bottles he's made Molotov cocktails out of and he just kind of smiles and looks at him and just kind of sits there and then we get the last shots of the base but then you have that score yeah There we go. Um, 
And yeah, that concludes, again, I'd like to get into this for a little bit, what Carpenter refers to as the first chapter in his Apocalypse trilogy. So apparently this also includes Prince of Darkness, which we'll get to uh, in a couple episodes, and also In the Mouth of Madness, which is a personal favorite of mine. And he talks about, I think you uh, probably have a little bit more detail on this than I do, but so he talks about the thing as being, you know, um, it's an internal threat that leads to... You know, it's something that comes from within that leads to the end of things. And Prince of Darkness, it's more, it's the end of God. Of God, uh, obviously, Satan comes back in that movie. And then uh, In the Mouth of Madness is the end of reality. And we'll get into what exactly that means when we get to the movie. But um, setting that up again, we've come off of uh, a bleak but fun kind of winking at the camera style ending with New York, which again is pretty nihilistic, but doesn't feel nearly as dark because of the movie that's preceded it. Um, this definitely is just, it's so unsettling and it accomplishes what I really want any horror movie to do. As much as I like the final scares, like there's great movies that have final jump scares or little twist moments or like, Oh, the evil's still around. But I love stuff that, keeps that that theme of like the evil is hasn't gone or whatever or you haven't quite mastered or you think you did but really leaves it to like tick in your mind of like what would happen and like that's what's beautiful about the thing storyline we've seen now a remake that kind of tells the norwegian story beforehand not very successful in my opinion and then uh the video game which i think is pretty interesting that came out, it's like early 2000s-ish. It was like original Xbox, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I think original Xbox PS. I'd love to get an HD update of that, but basically that storyline takes place after the events of the original. So if you kind of thread all three of these together, you have this great narrative of this base camp and this alien entity. But I would love to, uh, I'd love to actually see that game redone more uh, in the vein of like uh, Heavy Rain or uh, Until Dawn. Where it's like decision based because if I remember correctly, like you had the illusion of like, oh, you can test this guy or test this guy, like members of your party to see if they were going to turn. And like some of it was based on how you interacted with them. But I've seen things subsequently that apparently that wasn't an actual algorithm in the game. And it's like the people that were going to turn were always going to turn regardless of how you play it. Yeah, so it's it kind of bullshit. It matter whether you kept so, them on your side and gave them guns and yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, they were going to turn regardless. I would love to see um, a reworking of that because again, it's such an awesome concept. And if you remove a little bit more of the player agency and it's more of just like playing through narrative, like I said, somewhere like until dawn or something. And you could have so many like non-binary choices for like, okay, well, if you interact with this person here, then maybe they're not the thing here, but they have a possibility to be later. I just, I feel like that would be such an interesting concept to explore in games. And I know Carpenter's open to it because again, he, they licensed the thing and he did work on Fear, if I'm not mistaken, or the yeah, third the one. Games, yeah, games, Okay, yeah. So yeah, I think that kind of comes from his son. I'm pretty sure his son is the one who was responsible for pushing him towards doing that. But, um, yeah, so I'd love to see that reworked as a game. But back to what I was saying, I love that it leaves you just constantly spinning in your head with, like, okay, what's the next step? If if McCready is the thing or if not, does this thing die here? 
and just kind of imagine like what would happen if we saw a sequel down the road if it had ever gotten made that was like this same concept this same sort of entity but it comes to a highly populated area or it's just like in a city or it's you know any just possibilities are endless and it's it's such a great core concept of a creature that i haven't really seen replicated or anything close to it that i can think of no um, I, I can't come up with anything that's replicated and at all it's, and again that goes back to botine having that initial concept of why can't it be anything and i love that i feel like the possibilities would be endless for re-exploring that but i do love the setting so i would, I would definitely want that retained i feel like i feel like the whole antarctic base is part of what really makes the movie sing but let's maybe get into uh the remake a little bit it's a prequel yeah it's a technical um, prequel it's still entitled the thing and who do we have mary elizabeth winstead is joel edgerton in that movie yeah he is okay and i honestly i've seen it one time all i really remember is that the last like five minutes is fantastic because it threads perfectly into the original like you could watch them back to back unfortunately the movie that comes before it i just i don't remember having any lasting impression of it other than i didn't like the uh the effects similar to my issues with the fog remake um and yeah honestly don't remember much else about it other than she was kind of like a female mccready which I didn't really understand because it was supposed to be the Norwegian base, but we had a bunch of Americans in the cast. And I like almost feel like it would have been cool to have a subtitled, like told like all in Norwegian version, like unknown cast or something. Um, but yeah, not a fan of that one. What you looking at brother? Looking at the ending just to see, um, um, the thing in the form of Lars and Sea Dog runs to the camp. You're reading the ending for the remake, or the prequel rather. Yeah, and basically, um, okay, yeah, all right. When I first watched it, for some reason, I thought Mary Elizabeth Winstead made it out, but it literally is just two dudes at the end. Because I, for some reason, I thought like. Oh, and I have to go back and watch it. On the chopper. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, it's a. It's, hey, I can't. It Rogue again, One's I can't really it, remember. and I do love that. Yeah. It Rogue One's the shit out of it, like really right up to the last minute. How it gets there, but I just know that it did get there. It's basically they the same thing. They just like uh, it's. I I don't know if they go to. I have to watch it again. I don't because I watch it in parts too. I didn't give it a we'll, full. Uh, a, a we'll full go watch. ahead and say uh, at some point that'll be on the homework list too. We'll do a, a more proper discussion of it just because we'll I want to see how. How it functions uh, as a prequel, and again, if anybody from uh, I don't even know if Universal's gaming uh, label exists anymore. I think it was Vivendi Universal for a little bit. Yeah. But whoever has the rights to that, let's get an HD update of the Thing game because it was a fun time. Um, I think you get some of the original score in there. And like, yeah. I don't know if Carpenter, Carpenter had any. He does a voice. His yeah, voice over like cameo. Yeah, he's like a radio opera or something in there, but. And McCready is... Yeah, I just want to play through that again, and it's one of those, like, it's hard. There's no access to it unless you have Even a, if they could just let you download Xbox. it on PS4, Yeah, no, great. I just want, like, a digital version of it. Even if it's not HD update, I just, I want to play it again. Because in my memory, it was really, really good, but I don't ever remember beating it. That's the other Me thing. Me neither, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little more broadly. If we're... 
I will say, you know, we've we've talked generally about every one of them of like what we would do to recast. The thing is one that I never want. I'm to not be touching. Remade. I will um, not touch we, it. We can talk like I, I wouldn't fuck with the story structure at all. We can talk just like fan wise about who we would maybe cast if we had to recast it modern day. But I I don't ever want the thing to be remade. I remember when they announced that one and I was like, oh well, it's a prequel. I like that they're at least playing with the narrative a little bit but it essentially boils down to being a remake of the thing that's moves way too fast as you know a bunch of cg effects that wouldn't hold up like a year later and as i remember like no real legitimate scares of the psychological variety or the jump scare variety so um yeah incredibly hard role to recast but if you had to pick one uh one actor play McCready. we don't have to do the whole cast but just who would you sub in and again we had a general discussion about snake uh on a prior episode i feel like mccready kind of still fits into that like maybe he should be american even though we were throwing out like dan stevens for uh for snake I, honestly I, I i cannot think of one this is the only movie that we'll do this with that i cannot think of one because it's yeah. just so perfect I, yeah i think with we'll, who does it maybe we'll leave it at that because i have nothing that's that's coming to mind for that one and yeah it kind of it would almost feel like blasphemy to uh, suggest that anything should be messed with because i think again it is an unequivocal masterpiece if you for some reason never seen this one or avoided it for some reason again it's my favorite carpenter movie i love halloween i adore it but I feel like this is him at the height of his powers, firing on all cylinders. And on top of that, he has just a great support system beneath him of hugely talented individuals, whether it be the fantastic ensemble cast, his you know camera department, his makeup effects department. Everybody's just doing top-notch work. Except and for Universal. Yes. They fucked him I was going to say, except for this. everybody else surrounding it, because... We're, we got to get into a sad note. It's his biggest budget. He gets 15 mil to go make this thing with. And it only makes back 13.7. God knows what they spent on marketing on top of that. Nothing. On that Apparently 15. it was nothing because what you find in what I was finding was that if you listen to the thing about the men of the, the men the of this, yeah. that one. Basically, at the time, Universal was sinking a lot of money into their Cat People remake. Directed by Paul Schrader, which I actually watched for the first time this past Halloween. Uh, that's one of our mom's favorites, side note. Um, and so, because of that, they needed something to... Uh, I don't know... If, well, I don't remember exactly what was said. But basically, the Cat People remake that came out in 82, it was nah. that's what they decided to throw their money behind that's what they did because it made it was made for 12 and cat people made 21 so they kind of pushed that as opposed to the thing and of course the big you know well the big elf which i mean that had come out in april so you have this in june but what happens two weeks before is et et comes out <laughs> It's the kid-friendly yeah, alien I, yeah, one. I've it's, heard Carpenter jokingly refer to it as just like, we just, it was the absolute wrong time. You know, people were coming off of this cute family, you know, and E.T. has its in dark the woods. moments and stuff, but like, yeah, he's a cutesy alien. 
and then we show them this like vicious grotesque like just horrible thing i've got sorry i have to throw it in there because i've forgotten to mention it up to this point but one of my favorite quotes i think this was actually in the uh the uh, 100 Greatest Horror Scenes that Bravo did, like, years ago. Oh, yeah. Great series. I remember watching um, those with you. Those are really fun. But um, Carpenter's talking about a conversation that he had with Stephen King, and Stephen King, arguably a master of horror in his own right, and they're talking, and King says, you know, the, the old adage in Hollywood is you don't, you never show the monster. You always keep it hidden in shadow, or you make reference to it or whatever. He said, Ex- unless... The thing you have, like the effect, the creature, whatever, is so compelling and so astounding that you can't help but show it. And that's basically like, you know, Carpenter coming off of Halloween where Michael's hidden in the shadows and is this ominous figure that's looming over everything. And to transition into this where it's like, no, these effects are like right in your face. And like they're still elegantly lit to like hide some of the the rubber qualities of them and everything but it's just it's mind-blowing and i do not know what people made of it at the time just because it really was a huge step forward especially for a mainstream like studio release to have again that level of effects but also the darker aspects of the story the tone, as a whole. Yeah. I feel like it just turned people off in general. Well, see, and I also think you're seeing it at the wrong time. I mean, yeah, Paranormal Activity came out in the summer. Yeah, Halloween came out before Halloween. But I think if you push it back, give it a little bit more time to throw some posters up. This is a, this is a late October, November movie. To yeah, like, no and see, brainer. I don't know. And, and see, here's so the thing. You don't cold. know. You don't know who... I don't, I don't really, I never really got into that back in the day. I know now, but like a lot of big stuff comes out mid in the summer, August, September, October, even in November before, Mm -hmm. you know, Christmas, but you throw it on like in October when it's cold outside, it's a, you give it a couple more months of putting billboards up, letting people know what's going on with it, you know, getting it to tie into the fact that it's Kurt Russell and John Carpenter again and all this kind of stuff, giving people time to forget about ET, and yeah, okay, yeah. It, it would go back up. It would it would go against Halloween three, which John Carpenter was you know part of. But yeah. if you push it back just to October and release it, I think you got a whole new trajectory career wise because he says you know he takes failure to heart a lot of the times, and that was one of the worst ones up until that point, and he took it really hard, and he didn't work for a while after that. And it's really a shame because he seemed incredibly satisfied with this one. For all intents and purposes, he made the movie he wanted to make, one that was much more true to um, the original source material, who goes there, more so than the Howard Hawks version, which obviously was a huge fan of. But he said from the jump, like he didn't want to just remake that movie. He wanted to do his own thing. And as it stands, I mean, we, we didn't really talk about this in the content, but it is a remake in and of itself. Yeah, it is. And yeah. arguably... Possibly the greatest horror remake in the history yeah. of horror cinema, as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of people throw that right up there as well. Some people would argue The Fly as well. Cronenberg's The Fly. But, um, yeah, it's it's top-notch. I feel like he was very, you know, very satisfied and happy with it. And it's just so shitty that, you know, it was not received that way at the time. And I feel like this was the start of 
that happening oh, that. consistently yeah, I mean, this throughout happened, his career. And the other thing we should mention like too, from this point on, he's just a few few steps ahead of everybody else. Yes, yeah. because also on the same day that this movie was released, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner gets released. Uh, yeah, another movie not appreciated in its own time at all. But now it's like I an icon, exactly. and like the music and the sets and all that for Blade Runner. People go back to all the time for sci-fi. So I don't think putting it up against another mm-hmm. sci-fi movie and then making it in June as well. I think you you let Blade Runner do its thing. You push it back to to later in the year. And I think you got a whole new game. I think people appreciate it more. Yeah, I like this one. So we're essentially, we're not advocating for trying to mess with the original at all or like remake it. We just, just, just wish we could retroactively fix the release because yeah. that's the... And of course, it became a huge cult movie video, like saved this movie. And it's obvious. I feel like over time, it has built as we talked about cultural relevance with Halloween and like whether you can ever replicate something like that. And I feel like this and Escape are probably in a lot of people's minds. If they kind of have just a general knowledge of Carpenter, those are kind of the three main ones that hopefully I would want them to know is Halloween. Escape from New York and the thing. I feel and, like I mean, they're hallmark nice and game changers of, of genre. Yes. Halloween is a hallmark and a game changer of the horror genre. Just like this does wonders for sci fi. Yes. I mean, I'm pretty sure, I'm not going to lie, I, I didn't look. I know Greg Nicotero worked a lot with Stan Winston, but you can't tell me that some of the guys working today did not see that as kids or maybe even worked on it as kids and thought, holy fucking shit. You know, Tom Savini, I know, was a big deal with Night of the Living Dead. And then getting into the stuff in the early '80s, but there, you know there were people who worked on that as kids, like you know, like Rob, mm-hmm. who grew up, and now they're like that's their gold standard. Like that's how you can do it. And there is something to be said for the fact that it's rubber glue and a bunch of random yeah. shit, as opposed well, to ones and zeros to sound, on a computer. You know, not to sound like old farts or too pretentious in our own right, but I think we're both huge advocates for just like. You're, you're gonna throw you know a million dollars or 50 million towards your computer effects budget take a third of that and throw it into a practical effects budget and see where you get from there yeah. like i feel like it's just it's so written off to begin with that like nobody because either it's gonna be too time consuming or what whatever the justification is for not going that direction it seems like it always has to be a director stepping up to be like, no, I want this to have this particular feel. This is who I want. I think about like Tarantino always hiring KMB for all of his like effects and stuff, and it, that's mostly just like very normal like human on human violence. It's not like crazy effects and stuff. But I'm like, he has those guys at his disposal for that. Like, what you know? Why aren't more studio? I feel like it would be a money saver in most cases. like I don't know how the financials work out on that, but it seems like in a lot of cases the effects budgets that are thrown into you know computer animation could be translated into physical effects and still get you a pretty amazing product yeah because i mean in today's day and age because makeup effects are just even more astounding than they were then and we're talking about how well these still hold up and it's all about how you stage it and shoot it and again that goes back to Cundy's like amazing lighting that i feel like yeah, all of this mean, stuff if, still if you've really got something up. there to look at it's a little bit easier to rotoscope a wire out of something than it is to like create a 3d mat of it and like yeah. make it work with the environment i'm a fan so, also of like mixing the two together of like having kind of a you know a blended version of yeah, yeah which del works. toro has tooled around with in like pan's labyrinth and stuff but there's you you cannot 
understate how important that like just textural feel to something when something looks like i can imagine that in a 3d space in front of me like i can imagine what that would feel like or what it smells like or anything like that is going to be a thousand times more effective than me sitting there going like yeah i mean just oh, they the, made that the with steam and, and the just, slime and the, the junk just oozing the off of, of the yeah. vis yeah of these things and then like it's a dog head and then it's like a flower spinning venus flytrap thing and it's like a weird monster dog yeah, it's i want i would love i'm sure if it doesn't exist i i would love for one to come out soon i want like a nice giant coffee table book of like set photos and behind the scenes stuff and just like even like fan art based on the creature designs and yeah. stuff like i i love the visual look of this movie top to bottom and um yeah again it, it bums me out that we're we're talking about my personal favorite and it's it's not a success for him and this kind of uh lee's definitely i mean he's got some of his most interesting films coming up for sure and was christine a a studio picture no uh i'm not sure i feel like it was like more small reserved budget but i feel like it had like a more major release and if i'm remembering correctly i'll obviously do some research before we record but christine does kind of like tick i believe christine was successful upon release so yeah probably gets him back into somewhat good graces and you know I didn't do a lot of research as far as how the studio as a whole felt like, was it on him that it didn't work? Did somebody kind of stuff up and say, yeah, we kind of screwed the pooch on the marketing for this one. Don't really know what the dynamic was there, but obviously seemed like it kind of soured him as a first big studio experience. Um, he seemed like he liked a lot of aspects of it and had an enjoyable time filming it, but maybe wasn't as thrilled with how it was received and same thing for kurt russell too he has a great bit uh in the terror take shape documentary where he talks about you know maybe i'm just i'm just destined to be in things that people don't don't find and it's so funny because he's talking about like and that's why i'm you know i'm a really big fan of a, a video and how that's come about like as you know video is almost still like a new thing when he's talking about it but he's like i really feel like that's you know where things like this are going to find their audience because we're you know we're not making movies for you know just the people right at this time we're making movies for as many people to see as possible and he's like and sometimes maybe it's better to not be clouded by like he even references like the politics of the time and like different shit like that and i'm like yeah and i feel like he more than a lot of other actors has been a part of quite a few that found their legs later on it's like everybody loves kurt russell i feel like he's generally regarded as like this great like elder statesman of acting in general yeah but it's all on the backs of like he's never i mean you got your backdraft you got your tombstone but i feel like a lot of it is on the strength of just like his his dvd stuff i'm, I'm thinking like breakdown probably not huge when it came out love that fucking movie great like early 90s thriller captain ron totally fun family movie like all of these that I feel like again are like huge for us but just didn't quite hit in theaters but he's had soldier so yeah, so many of those. Um, yeah, so again, shout out to Kurt Russell. Shout out to John Carpenter. Love their collaborations together. This is my favorite. Uh, slight, behind that, just on the basis of collaboration, I'm not saying just as movies, uh, Big Trouble would be my next uh, collaboration just because they seem like they were having just A the most blast. fun ever making that movie. So that one's to come, uh, but next week uh, we'll be getting into Christine. Um, this one, 
it's it's gonna be a fun one i love christine oh we got carpenter adapting stephen king um a great central performance uh from keith gordon i almost said Stuart gordon but that's not correct keith that's gordon. the director um but yeah keith gordon who is and, actually a director in his own right now uh we'll talk about that next episode. and like john travolta's cousin right that's the villain oh yeah Looks like exactly wannabe Vinny exactly Bar, exactly yeah. like Travolta, and of course we'll get into it's that. like they they wrote it and like didn't like somebody had the idea for the script when the book came out, and they were thinking like like maybe if Saturday Night Live yeah, had also. not taken off, that he'd be the perfect for it, or like I, I feel like it's like an extension of like he maybe they didn't want him because he was in Carrie, and then possible. like it's right you know, or not right around. He was in Carrie, but it's like, oh, I mean, he's going to be a Stephen King actor, but yeah. One, no, I rewatched Christine this past Halloween. Love it regardless, but um, one of the things that like really stuck with me is I was watching with Veronica. She hadn't seen it before, and she was like, so all these high schoolers are like 35, right? Yeah, like, yeah totally. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. They're all supposed to be like juniors or seniors in high school, and they all look 35 years old, yeah. except for Keith Gordon. But, um, yeah, so looking forward to Christine. That's that's a huge fun one. But glad we got this one in the books. Uh, so, yeah, we'll uh, we'll sign off. This has been uh, Carpenter Revisited on the Archive Network. We've been talking about the thing. Uh, I've been Noah, and I've been Gavin, and we've been the Blanchard Brothers. So, uh, you want to just hang around here for a little while and see what happens? I think I'm gonna bury this tape. Just so if we don't make it out, someone will know what happened here. Doom, 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 doom. doom. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> I'm going to hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. Lauren's been hitting us hard now for 48 hours. We still have nothing to go on. thing. I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Windows found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. They could be anybody's. Nobody nobody trusts anybody now. And we're all very tired. trust anybody now. Nothing else I can do. Just wait. RJ McCready, helicopter pilot, US outpost number 31.